In this episode, we speak with Kristen Gunther, a partner at Revolution Growth, which invests growth capital in technology-enabled businesses that empower consumers and disrupt existing multi-billion dollar industries. The Revolution Platform is a Washington, D.C.-based investment firm founded by Steve Case in 2005. Its mission is to build disruptive, innovative companies that offer consumers more choice, convenience, and control in their lives. Kristen brings over 15 years of experience in private equity, finance, and operations. Prior to joining Revolution, she spent five years at Perseus, where she worked with portfolio companies and management teams on growth strategies, operating and finance matters, and exit planning. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. If you like the episode, click the subscribe. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Kristen, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a delight to be with you. Yes, thank you. Great to be here. Very excited to have you on. I think it's been some time since we had one of your colleagues on. So maybe we could kick off if you can tell us a little bit about Revolution and then we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, so Revolution is a venture firm based here in Washington, D.C., started by Steve Case. And over the course of the last 12 years or so, we have basically brought in sort of the family of funds under the Revolution umbrella to include a seed stage fund called Rise of the Rest, a venture fund, and then a growth stage fund. And so they're each kind of separate you know, funds with their own teams and portfolios. And I sit at the growth stage fund. Excellent. And we'll spend the majority of time talking about the growth stage fund. But what's super cool is the rise of the rest. And I think there was a lot of publicity around that. Obviously, folks know he's a household name, Steve Case. Can you tell us about rise of the rest and what that's all about? Sure. Yeah. The rise of the rest really was born out of this ethos that Steve was very passionate about having founded AOL in Northern Virginia, that the balance of good ideas in this country doesn't kind of align with the balance of where capital is allocated in the U.S. And so he's pretty passionate about supporting entrepreneurs in parts of the country that don't get a lot of funding. So the seed fund, their sort of mandate is to invest outside of San Francisco, Boston, and New York, and they're super active and have a super interesting portfolio. And selfishly, from my perspective, it's a great pond to fish out of. And I noticed just the sheer volume of companies that revolution has been a part of in one way or another. And some of these are like name brands that you frequently encounter. How is it that I guess your firm has able to like reach all of these great companies? I think the revolution brand travels pretty far. We have a lot of boots on the ground with the seed fund team, just by virtue of where they're investing, they kind of have to have people spread across the country. And I think that has really helped build the brand almost from a grassroots standpoint. Some of our big early wins at the growth fund companies like a sweet green that just people have just heard of and they know about. And so some of our earlier wins, I think, have raised awareness of the revolution brand and kind of what we do here. And so I'd say a combination of those two things. For those in our audience that may not understand where the split is between your earlier stage and your growth fund, how do you guys look at it internally? So the seed fund, they're obviously, they're writing really small checks kind of in the couple hundred thousand dollars to a million range and really early stage companies. The venture fund is doing mostly series A, kind of traditional series A investor. They sometimes will do a series B. And then the growth stage where I sit, 
we're really looking at series C and later. Sometimes we'll dip down to a B. So there's maybe a little bit more gray area between ventures and growth. But even so, I think it's pretty obvious when we see a company that's ready for growth stage capital when it's just a little bit too early and more appropriate for our ventures fund. We certainly see a lot as well that we call tweeners. So a little bit too late for ventures, a little bit too early for growth. Kind of the rule of thumb that we use at growth in terms of being ready for growth capital is has the company scaled? Is their product market fit? Is the revenue at a point where there's clearly something that they're doing right? So for us, the line in the sand we tend to draw is kind of 20, 30 million in revenue or more. If it's a true ARR business, it can be a little bit less than that. If it's a direct to consumer business, it probably has to be more than that. But that's sort of the, the line we draw in the sand. Have you seen any shift towards growth investors wanting to see some EBITDA? You know, like given how things have just maybe turned a little bit more conservative and burn rate conscious. Yeah, I mean, I think growth means different things, to different people. We are of the ilk of, you know, we're not looking at bootstrap companies, generally speaking. Like we are, I'd say, like more like venture growth. It's not kind of the old school summit model. We are more venture growth. And so we typically, our companies are not profitable when we invest and they probably continue on that path. But I'd say there is, you know, the days of like, double digit burn are probably over for even folks like us. Like usually the companies are still burning capital, but we're really spending a lot of time understanding where that burn is coming from and whether it's being used efficiently. I wouldn't say that we're necessarily looking for EBITDA though. Right. And this is a good distinction to make venture growth versus I guess more traditional growth. And so we alluded to being a little bit more maybe burn rate conservative. What are the other elements about venture growth as it relates to value creation, obviously like a more traditional growth approaches it perhaps in a more involved way, but can you tell us about how you look at value creation and what your role is with your portfolio companies? Yeah. I mean, I think we are pretty actively involved with our companies. We almost always take a board seat. And I think, you know, we do a lot of what other folks do as well around helping to hire good people and helping with exit planning and things like that. I'd say one thing that's a little bit unique about us being in Washington, D.C., and given our network here, we help our companies a lot with navigating policy and regulatory issues. And we have a couple of resources on our team here that are dedicated to helping our companies, you know, either from a defensive or offensive position could potentially change the trajectory of the company. And it's an area where I think we've been able to add a lot of value and have a lot of kind of case studies around how some of the things that we've done to help have really moved the needle. It's interesting being in the, the DC, Northern Virginia, DC area, whereas a lot of the funds, growth oriented funds are out on the West Coast or maybe, you know, Northeast. I guess, how has that impacted I guess you're competitive this overall across the nation. I think it's super helpful, especially these days, because whether it's antitrust or whatever, you know, I feel like tech is being dragged into the regulatory spotlight more often than it used to be. So I think, you know, it's always been a differentiator, but especially I'd say more recently when we tell founders, hey, we can help in this way, their kind of ears perk up and say, hey, you know, none of my other investors have been able to help me there. And actually, I really do need help on this one specific thing or yeah. So I think that's been a huge differentiator. And can you tell us how Revolution has grown in terms of, I don't know what kind of metrics you could provide, if, if there's AUM metrics or how you typically describe the path that Revolution has taken since inception in 2005? I don't know that I know the numbers off the top of my head. I can tell you we're about a billion of AUM at the growth fund level and about 2 billion AUM overall. Okay. Got it. And so when LPs take a look at, and maybe this is a bit outside kind of your purview, but it, when LPs take a look at 
revolution how do they differentiate revolution versus the other funds out there you know what's the kind of like the thing that you guys like to highlight the most i mean i don't i don't want to beat a dead horse here but i'd say the policy piece is different okay. them as well because it's something that they don't necessarily have in their portfolio and we like to think of regulatory tailwinds as a tide that lifts all boats and if you can get behind like big trends that are related to government spending for example that like there's that should really limit your downside and so I think, you know, LPs is something that LPs, I think, appreciate as being different about us and different about our approach. Let's get a little bit into your background. I think it's very interesting. You know, it, it, we always consider what it takes to succeed in this industry. You've done a very nice job of it. Interestingly, Perseus, where you were previously at, was one of my clients, like literally over 20 years ago. I was an auditor at Perseus. So I think it's the same one in the DC area. I don't know if it's changed hands. And then I saw it again when I was at Lazard and we had looked at one of their portfolio companies, I believe in the auto space. So tell us about your career path and how you ended up getting to where you are today. Yeah, sure. It's been a bit of a journey, but it's mostly been in finance the whole time. But I came out of undergrad kind of post-internet bubble bursting. And so I went to Wall Street, was working at a boutique investment bank, started an M&A, but pretty quickly was pulled into the restructuring group because there were a lot of big corporate bankruptcies going on at the time. And then after a couple of years doing that, decided I wanted to spend some time looking at public companies. So I was at a sales and trading firm for a couple of years. And then when the financial crisis hit, it felt like a good time to go to business school. Spent two years at UVA, where I know you went as well. Absolutely loved it. I mean, joined Perseus coming out, was there for five years. That was more about, you know, it was a mid-market LBO kind of buyout firm. And I absolutely loved my time there. I'd actually probably still be there, but the founder of the fund actually passed away relatively suddenly. And so I kind of stayed and helped kind of wind down the existing funds. And at the same time, started looking for the next stop. And when I met the Revolution folks, it just seemed like a really good fit. And so that was eight years ago, and I haven't looked back. And so it's a distinct change, I think, in the investment style and focus from Perseus to Revolution. I guess, what are the key things that you learn to adapt to in terms of the way you evaluate potential opportunities? Yeah, it was a bigger transition than I thought it was going to be, honestly, going from kind of majority ownership to minority was a big change day to day in terms of, you know, at Perseus, we could invest in a company and then kind of walk in the next day and say, okay, here's how things are going to go. Whereas you obviously can't really do that at our stage. You don't really want to do that. You want to back teams that you trust to do the right thing. But it does make, you know, particularly when times get tough, it does make for a little bit more having to navigate various kind of stakeholders, viewpoints and, and things like that. And that has been a little bit harder. The other piece is just you know, I was kind of used to the rigor around analyzing 10 years worth of financial statements and having the data at my fingertips. And, you know, I think there's a little bit more that is just unknown. There is more that's unknown and having to understand how to analyze that risk was definitely a learning curve when I joined here. On the positive side, I mean, having had kind of operational restructuring experience, like I came with a toolkit of like, okay, when things aren't going right, there are some levers that you can pull to impact margin or what have you. And that has also been helpful. Yeah, I can imagine it's it's kind of hard to take the leap of faith in some cases. Maybe there's like some cuspy situations where you just can't really with with a, like a super high degree of confidence say like this one is going to be, you know, a 5x, 10x return. Are there some telltale signs for you or ones where you really have conviction? What really like pulls you towards that side of being convicted about an opportunity? Yeah. 
I mean, I think VCs look at the management team. You know, I spend a lot of time kind of understanding their psyche and the more qualitatively, like kind of what drives them. Do they have confidence but humility at the same time? Do I think they can be kind of a calm during a storm? Things like that at the growth stage, I think, are very important because inevitably things, they don't always go up and to the right. Um, and so that is really important. And then the other piece for me that kind of like, you know, the hairs like stand up in the back of my neck when I talk to a founder and I can just tell there's something about their model, whether it's a technology that they have or the way that they do things where they just have a structural advantage versus competitors. And that kind of plays out in their financials. And it's pretty rare that that high doesn't always happen even in the companies we invest in. But when it does, that's really, really exciting. Mm-hmm. And is there a line in the sand where it's like revenue growth has to be above a certain number? No, I'd say we, we're typically investing in companies that are growing more than 50% year over year. Let's talk about your focus areas. And maybe we can pull out an example of you know a company that you invested in and really helped along the way. Sure. Yeah. So over the course of my time here, I've covered a couple of different sectors, but I now cover commerce, which is relatively broad and goes anything from kind of consumer internet to marketplaces, to supply chain, anything kind of in between. So anything that touches or enables sort of buying and selling, I guess, falls under my purview. So fairly broad. You know, one company that I invested in recently is a company called Carbon Robotics, which came out of some work that we were doing around kind of CHIPS Act and reindustrialization and who might the beneficiaries be of some of that trend. And so we reached out to a handful of companies that were helping factories and farmers become more efficient. When we met the carbon robotics team, we were really excited about what they were doing. So they marry kind of hardware and software to provide a tools really for farmers to be more efficient, particularly in their weeding process. So they sell their device to these really large specialty crop growers. And the device, what it does, it attaches to a tractor. So it's a pull behind piece of hardware and it uses AI to identify weeds. And then it eliminates the weeds with a laser and it replaces about 40 people. So from a farmer's standpoint, I mean, it's much cheaper over time. It avoids the headache of having to hire mostly migrant workers. And it's much better for the environment because the alternative to hand laborers is either mechanical tilling, which is really bad for the soil, or just spraying Roundup everywhere, which is obviously bad for the environment. So it's a company that we're super excited about. Excellent. And how does a company like that get in front of you? That was an outbound. So we got in front of them as part of like this theme that we were chasing. So that was one that was just the stars aligned. We reached out at a time when they happened to be raising and kind of just went from there. Excellent. You know, one thing I'm always interested in, and, and we do have a fair amount of investors across the board at all different levels, you know, whether it's mid-level or higher level, how would you describe the culture at Revolution? What makes it unique, like internally? Yeah, I mean, I think, especially given the various funds here, it's super cordial and collaborative. One thing that I'd say broadly about the people here, I mean, it really is a place of humility. People here are super, super capable and confident and all very successful in their own right, but it's a pretty low ego place. Mm -hmm. Well, we're entering into the tail end of our conversation. We have a couple questions we like to close with. One is like, can you tell us about someone who has influenced you? It could be either professionally or personally, and it could be someone in business or in other areas of your life. Sure. I'm going to go outside the box on this one. <laughs> sure. This somebody that I just admire and I draw inspiration from, I would say on almost a daily basis. I'm a pretty passionate runner. I run almost every day. It's something that I love to do. 
And there's a woman by the name of Kara Diamato, who is a, a female runner who's nearing her 40s. She has a day job and she set the women's marathon record last year. She's just an incredible all-around person and athlete. And when I have hard days, sometimes I think she's got two kids, she's got a job, and there she is, you know, setting the marathon record. And that's just something I just think is incredible. And when I'm tired or when I, you know, feel like I can't do something, I actually, I think of Kira. Fantastic. And last question, can you tell us about a cause or a charity or endeavor that you feel passionate about? Yeah, I think this goes back to running. And I also, I have two children myself. One of them is a girl. She is almost 10. And I don't know if you've heard of an organization called Girls on the Run, but it really encourages girls to be active and to use running to build confidence. And it's an organization that I just love and I've been a part of for a long time and would really like to, once I can figure out how to work it into my schedule, I'd love to be a coach one of these days. Excellent. Excellent. I have two girls myself. They did do Girls on the Run. Very familiar with that organization. Well, Kristen, thank you so much again for taking the time here. This has been a wonderful conversation. I know our audience will find this very insightful. Thank you. 